Well, good morning. Good to see you again. This time, Pastor John is healthy. <laughs> he uh, had that kidney stone. That was a very painful thing last time I was here, uh, but this time he's in Guatemala uh, with 50 volunteers, and so we thank God for them and their work, and you just heard about it, and so we'll be in prayer for them. I also do want to say uh, thank you, Madam Hills, for uh, your prayers. Many of you have prayed for me in uh, my cancer treatments, and I have a biopsy tomorrow. Hopefully it comes out clear. We'll find out how everything worked. But I really appreciate your, uh, your prayers uh, for me. It really means a lot. A number of you have asked. And uh, cancer's, cancer's rough. You know, it's rough. And uh, anyone with cancer will tell you that. But uh, God is good. And when he gives you your life back, you just feel like living, you know, every minute. That's great. Um, so Sue and I have been uh, staying at Rachel and Paul and the family's home uh, this week. And we were there to basically take care of the, uh, the dog and the cats. And uh, I heard a really good definition of a difference between a dog and a cat. Um, a dog will look at you as if to say, you know, you feed me, you take care of me, you provide for all my needs, you must be God. And a cat looks at you and says, you know, you feed me, you provide for all my needs, I must be God. <laughs> you have a cat, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Well, you know, um, I wonder, we've experienced God's grace sometimes with such regular intervals, his provisions, his love, his forgiveness, it comes at us so regularly. How do we respond? Do we respond like a dog? Like, you must be God. Or like a cat? Like, I must be God. That's what we're going to talk about today. As we look at the book of Proverbs, Pastor John introduced uh, the Proverbs last week, the title of the series uh, on Proverbs, Modern Problems, Ancient Solutions. Proverbs is practical wisdom. And how do we find out how to live day by day? And so uh, last week, Pastor John introduced it, saying that wisdom is like a virtuous woman uh, that should be pursued and sought like you would pursue silver or gold. Whereas foolishness is like a loose woman who is to be avoided and not to be entrapped by false philosophy. And so what I'm going to speak is I'm going to speak from my experience in, in teaching, uh, college, uh, high school, and, uh, and through the church, of course, with two verses from the book of Proverbs. I'm going to focus on those. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so my question to you today is, where does knowledge begin? Really there are two possibilities. First of all, does it begin with me? Like I must be God? Or does it begin with God? Like he is God. It's really very simple. And yet we've made it much more complicated. See, uh, these days we hear a lot about fake news. Uh, how do we know what we believe is real? How do we know that it matches reality? Well, let's look at the, the one word. Let's start with the word beginning. The word, where does knowledge begin? You, you need to ask that. Uh, in the, the word beginning in Proverbs 1 and 10 is reshith, 
And it brings us right back to the very first word of the Bible in Hebrew. The first word of the Bible, Genesis 1-1, is Be-Reshith. Reshith is in the beginning. And so let me speak from the viewpoint of my experiences in school. Uh, I'm, I'm speaking. There are two books I'd recommend to you if you want to hear more about it, read more about it. One is called The Soul of the American University. What has happened to the university's soul and how it began with uh, good biblical sound principles from God and how it's changed over the years. Uh, and the second is the battle for the American mind, which really speaks to how education has been affected now, not just in the colleges, but now it's going to the high school, junior high, and now even into a grammar school. So uh, just to get some background as to how we got where we are today, I need to speak a little bit about some history and a little bit about some philosophy, if that's okay. Remember, I teach, so I teach when I preach, and I preach when I teach. So um, the 1800s, if you look at American history, was a period of unprecedented scientific and technological growth. I could name a hundred uh, incredible things that we count on today, inventions, uh, uh, the electric engine, electromagnet, the propeller, the Colt revolver, telephone, telegraph, anesthesia, antiseptics, antibiotics, sewing machine, on and on. I can name a hundred more. It was incredible technological progress and incredible growth we saw as a nation, unprecedented growth. But it came at a price is that it became attached to a philosophy known as rationalism. Now, rationalism doesn't necessarily mean that it's just rational. It, 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 in fact, it doesn't mean that biblical revelation is not rational. Uh, but rationalism refers to the source where knowledge begins, if it begins with God or with me, right? And so I would refer you, again, if you wanted to read on that, uh, Francis Schaeffer wrote a book, The God Who Is There. Good book. I'd like you to consider reading that. It's very readable, but it really gets into the philosophy, the philosophical change. Now, I have to admit, I teach philosophy uh, as well as theology at, uh, at Pillar College. And, you know, I know how philosophers think. You know, the normal greeting is, hi, how are you? A philosopher says, like, hi, what is reality? You know, we, we think differently. I drive my kids, my grandkids crazy. We'll watch a movie, we'll listen to a song, and I'll start analyzing it. And it's like, you know, consider what they're saying. Let's look at the words. It's like, can't you just enjoy it? <laughs> Come on. You know, so I know, I know how philosophers think. I, I do know that. But I think we need to understand philosophy to, to, so that we understand that we need to take every thought captive to obey Christ. So we need to understand where our thinking comes from, what things we believe, where does it come from? We need to examine our assumptions. When we investigate truth, where does it begin? Where does knowledge begin? With me? Like a cat, you know? I am God? Or with God? You are God, right? See, there's, there's philosophical assumptions in everything we do. We don't really think about them. We just sort of operate Man, just not really looking back at what, how do we do our work? What entertainment do we listen to or watch? How do we raise our families? What political views do we have? Uh, what about the music we listen to? Uh, how do we spend our money? There are assumptions behind them. 
And, and, and if you really want to understand what, what we've been, the way we think, we need to say, okay, do my assumptions match reality? Do they match reality? And see, if we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, right? We need to understand how we think and how transformational Christian and biblical thinking can be. Now, so a little bit of recent philosophical history. So I'm going to do a little bit of philosophy and the rise of rationalism. Rationalism originated uh, almost 300 years ago. uh, It was 200 years after the Protestant Reformation in the early 1700s. There was a French philosopher named Voltaire. And Voltaire rejected the classical idea that knowledge came from God through a process called revelation. See, revelation is heaven to earth. The Bible is not just about all its truth it presents, it's direction. Do I go this way to God? Is it from me to God? Or is it from God to me? Right? And so knowledge, does it come from me to God? Or does it come from God to me? Well, Voltaire rejected revelation, which was a God-initiated process, and instead substituted that human knowledge originated through reason. And that is a human-initiated process. It's from me, right? So his famous phrase, you've probably heard of it, I think, therefore I am, right? And so that comes from Voltaire. See, so what it's saying is that our investigation of reality does not begin with God. It begins with me. And so it developed into a, uh, uh, something that was known as the Enlightenment or free thinking, You might have heard that phrase too, free thinking. what, What was it freed from? It was freed from any ties to biblical revelation or Christian tradition. It was break uh, free from, from God to us. So even though some of the great scientists in history, they were Christian, you have Da Vinci and Galileo and Newton and Pascal and Curie and Pasteur, um, the philosophy of rationalism that any understanding of you know the rational universe must come from me and that it it is that my reason can determine this and it really focused on the material world and so it developed into what's known as materialism or naturalism right so it's encapsulated in statements like follow the science or entering the real world which means the the world of the philosophy of scientific materialism Right? Or, or I believe in science, not theology, as if they were mutually exclusive. Right? It's not all inclusive. So Europe and America in the 1800s, we saw a rapid rise in deism. Deism simply means God created the world with rules and those laws, and he didn't interfere with it. He does not speak in words. He's completely separate from his creation. He doesn't do miracles. He doesn't answer prayer. And he certainly didn't come incarnate in Jesus right? That's deism or atheism, that there is no God. Well, a hundred years ago, a social commentator uh, and a a poet and a playwright, uh, T.S. Eliot, uh, wrote a poem called The Rock, and it was prophetic, and it certainly is more relevant today than it was even then. And one line in his poem really, really got me. He said this, where is the wisdom we've lost in knowledge? And where is the knowledge we have lost in information? 
Now, I would add to that one uh, more line, where's the information we have lost in social media? See, I heard one social commentator say it this way, today, facts don't matter. What matters more is preserving my narrative. In other words, I believe what I want to believe, and I'm going to believe it, and it doesn't matter if it matches reality or not. It's true because I believe it. See, I, it's my narrative. It's my story that matters. There's no what's called meta-narrative. There's no big story I need to fit into. It's my story. That's what counts. I am God. And so the primary effect of this knowledge revolution was that it transferred that beginning of knowledge from God to us. And it was clearly manifested in two documents in the 1900s. 1933 was Humanist Manifesto I, signed by John Dewey, who's considered by many today, he's called the father of American education, and Humanist Manifesto II in 1972. And it can be summarized with this statement. No deity will save us. We must save ourselves. Now, if I were to communicate this philosophy with popular culture, uh, I, you know, I, I could do it in a philosophy class or, you know, in a church. No, you know what I'd do? I, 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 would, I would find a popular singer whose music has been heard all over the world and it would have a catchy, catchy, peaceful melody. And it would go something like this. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us. Above us only sky. I'm not going to sing. You know, I'm not like the worship team here. But imagine all the people living for today. Or imagine there's no country or there's no religion. All the people would then live life in peace, right? And then imagine no possessions. I wonder if you can, you know, no need for greed or hunger, a brotherhood of man. Imagine all the people sharing all the world. And then he says this. Imagine, you may say that I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and then the world will be as one. See? So in that song... He communicated a materialistic vision of atheism, no religion, no heaven or hell, no God, no afterlife, no accountability, free thinking, globalist, centralized control of possessions, living life in peace, and the world will become one. And the problem, the reason it hasn't happened yet, even though it's never happened anywhere in the world, it's been tried, is just because you haven't joined us. You haven't joined in. So what's the result? What has been the result? What do we see happening in culture? Well, it's a culture that's lost its foundation. See, David said in Psalm 11:3, if the foundations are destroyed, what will the righteous do? The foundations are clearly destroyed in a culture that cannot clearly define key principles such as God or truth or human or man, or woman, or family. See, and this, this materialistic, rationalist vision has pretty well captured some of the major institutions in our culture. The arts, entertainment, business, media, news outlets, government, and my field, the field of education. And, and as I said, what is most 
disconcerting to me is that it's not just in the colleges and universities. It starts there, but it goes now to the high schools, and now we're moving into the grammar schools with the kids. See, that's why I was uh, headmaster at American Christian School for two years, and I got to study classical Christian education. I'd like to commend some of you who've been connected with American Christian School, and I'm just grateful because they teach from a very clear worldview. It teach very consistent, the long history of knowledge all the way to this point. And so part of my mission at Pillar College is I want to I want to raise up a generation of people who can think and speak and write from a Christ-centered biblical worldview. And so the primary problem with a, this rationalist materialist worldview goes right back to Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, you remember Satan's primary appeal what was he saying? He was saying, you shall be like God. What? Knowing good and evil. What's wrong with knowing good and evil? Well, who knows what's good and evil? Right? God knows. And so when we move from a God-centered worldview to a me-centered worldview, we're saying, I must be God. Not you must be God. And what we're doing is we're calling good evil, and we're calling evil good, and we're saying, I know better than God what is good and evil. That is the problem we're facing today. And so what does ancient wisdom say? What do Proverbs say? Well, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So let's start with that word fear. When I say fear, what are we talking about? Well, fear is from a Hebrew word, uh, yirah, and it means great respect. There is an awe. There is a reverence before God. Uh, you remember the story of the call of Isaiah. In Isaiah 6, he has this beautiful vision. It's like God kind of peels back the heavens. He kind of gives them a peek behind the curtain into the spiritual realm. And it says, Isaiah, he said, I saw the Lord lifted up, high up, and I saw him in all his glory and his power and his holiness. And what was the feeling he had? Well, you might say, oh, man, this is great. You know, I'm seeing God. I, no, 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 it was great awe and even fear and trepidation. He goes, woe is me. I'm unclean. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people with unclean lips. In other words, I don't deserve to be here. I don't deserve the calling you've given me. I don't deserve any of it. I am undone because I recognize the power of your presence. I'm not worthy of the calling that you've given me. See, that is the response we have. If you've ever really experienced the fullness and the awe and the wonder as you, you, you see God in all his fullness, fear of the Lord. I'm undone. I don't deserve to be here. So, first thing, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Now, let's, let's look at that. Knowledge, the Hebrew word is da'ath. Uh, knowledge, it also means perception, uh, truth. It means experiential knowledge. It's acquaintance. I'm acquainted with you as a person. I can know facts about you, but I become acquainted with you. It's a relational concept. It's a personal knowledge. And so, again, where does knowledge begin 
in the Bible. Let's go right back to Genesis 1.1. Now, it's interesting. You say this to my class, and they're surprised. I say, do you know the Bible doesn't prove God? It doesn't, because that assumes a rationalist philosophy. See, the first four words of the Bible, in the beginning, God. See, the Bible's first assumption is God is. Right? The first four words communicate that. Knowledge does not begin with me. It begins with God. And so I don't prove God. He proves me. See, I don't validate his existence. He validates my existence. See, the Bible says in Hebrews eleven six, 6, without faith, it's impossible to please God because those who come to him must believe he exists and he's a rewarder of those who seek him. Or you remember when, when Moses, it's so funny, he has all these, you know, he speaks, if you look at Exodus 3, he's before the burning bush, and God says, you know, I've seen, I've heard, I'm concerned, and I'm going to do something about the people of, of, Egypt, of Israel that are in Egypt. And you can just see Moses going, yes. <laughs> and then God says, I'm sending you to do it. And Moses goes, no, it's not me. I, no, I can't do this. I can't do this. So the first two questions, the first question he asks is, who am I? But the second question he asks is, who are you? Who are you? And when he asks God, who are you, what does God say? I am who I am. That's it. I am. I just am. See, Yahweh, Jehovah, Jehovah is an appropriate name for God. I am. His name was his person. His character, his nature, his authority, his power, his reputation. I am. He's eternally existing. Existing. He's always in the present tense. He's dependent on no one for his existence. He's answerable to no one. He's not to be compared to anyone or anything. He is self-existing, self-revealing, self-authenticating, self-righteous. He's the one and only Lord, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the ruler of the universe, the great I am. And so because I am, I will keep my promises. And because I am, you can trust me. And because I am, I will meet your every need. And that's what Moses needed to know. I am. And that's what we need to know. So when we begin with our search from God, you got to start with the first assumption. God. In the beginning, God. I need to have an understanding of the nature and character of God. And when I do, I have a healthy holy awe before him. So who is God? Well, the Bible says a number of things about God, and as you get to know his character, first thing the Bible says is God is a person. He's not an it, right? Not an impersonal force. You know the force be with you, right? That's, that's popular these days. Why? Because, you know, if God is just a, a force or a principle, I don't have to answer to him. I don't have to be moral. I don't need to obey anyone. I don't need to follow any standards but my own. I don't need to talk about or deal seriously with sin. I don't need to even turn from my sin if God is a force. And see, that's not the God presented in the Bible. He is incredibly, he's very personal. He has intellect, emotion, and will like you and I have, right? So he is a person. 
He is also, it says in Psalm 9, 7, the Lord reigns forever. God is eternal. That is, he's without beginning and without end. Bible also presents God is all-powerful. The theological word is omnipotent, right? Genesis 17, 1, God said to Abraham, I'm the God, what? Almighty, not just the highest power, not the most power. I have all power, all authority. There's nothing too big for his power, nothing too small for his attention. He is going to notice it all. He, and we can't comprehend that. You know, I look at this laptop computer and say, if this laptop computer just tried to download the information of the internet, it would fry the computer. Well, my laptop computer cannot comprehend an infinite mind. It's just incredible. He is all powerful, right? The Bible also presents God as being everywhere present at the same, same time. The word, theological word is omnipresent. Psalm 139, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your right hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me. So he is omnipresent. He's present everywhere. And the Bible also says God knows all things, right? 1 John 3.20, for God is greater than our hearts. He knows everything. And so the theological term, omniscient, he knows everything that's happening in the entire universe all the time. He knows exactly how many stars there are in the, in the universe, how many planets are by each star. He knows everything about each one of those stars and planets. He knows if there's life on any of those planets and what they look like. He knows about you and me. He knows about how many cells are in our body, how they operate. He knows the laws of physics and chemistry and biology, exactly how, he, how they work and why. He knows every detail in history, every detail about the lives of every man, woman, and child that ever lived. He's omniscient. He knows all. The Bible also said God is spirit from John 4, 14. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So he doesn't have a body like yours or mine. He's not limited to time and space. He can be everywhere at the same time, and he can exist even across an infinite number of dimensions. The Bible says God is uh, unchanging, or the theological word immutable. From Psalm 102, 25 to 27, you remain the same, your years will never end. So God is the same God. The reason why we can meet and enjoy, uh, we can read now and enjoy the Bible and apply it to us, is because the same God who met Peter and Paul, James and John, Isaiah and Jeremiah, Moses and Elijah, Abraham and Isaac, is the God that meets us today. And the Bible says that God's word is the same as well. And so his word will endure forever. From Isaiah 40, verse 8, the grass withers, the flowers fall, the word of the Lord endures forever. So God's commandments, they're the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He still hates immorality and murder and lying, cheating, stealing, idolatry, adultery, why? Because of what they do to relationships, how they destroy relationships. He hates them as much as he did thousands of years ago when his word was written. Hasn't changed. The Bible also says that God is the creator. And, you know, when we look around, we see clear evidence that God exists. 
See, the Bible says in Romans 1.20, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. And so that's why I believe God wants us to study science. I think he likes when we do that. I, I have a telescope. My next purchase, I want to get a, a, a digital microscope. I, I like to look at the universe. I like to look at the stars. I like to look inside and see the detail that he's made in the nature all around us. And God wants us to do that. Why? Because his invincible attributes, all these are clearly seen. We can see them. They're all through what has been made. But God does give a warning. In Romans 1, he says this. He says, we got to be aware that we do not exchange the truth of God for a lie and start worshiping and serving the creation rather than the creator, which is what we see happening today, right? So we need to remember that he wants us to study science, but not to get off base and miss that there's a divine connection. But the Bible also says that God is holy. In Isaiah 6, again, that story of Isaiah and his calling, the angel, the seraphim that were there called to one another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. See, that's the way the people in the Bible would say, like you and I would say, he's mega awesomely holy, you know? Well, he's holy, holy, holy. You take holiness, you multiply by holiness, you multiply by holiness. He's really holy. That means he has no sin, he has no fault in him, He's morally and ethically perfect. He cannot tolerate sin in his presence. Now, he's all of those things, but here's the beautiful thing. Listen, this is great. That same God, with all that power, who's omnipresent, who knows everything, who's omnipotent, the Bible says he may hate sin, but he loves the sinner. Right? John 3, 16, God so loved or 1 John 4, 16, God is love. Those who abide in love abide in God. He's infinitely loving. I think the thing we're going to be most in awe of when we see God face to face one day, is not just his power, his omnipotence. I think it's going to be his love. I think it's just going to be incredible. See, what would you do if God was a God of hate? What would you do if recently he created us because he wanted objects of torture? He liked to torture us. And if we died, he'd just resurrect us and do it again. What would you do if he was like that? You know what you'd do? Absolutely nothing. There's no one to appeal to. There's nothing you can do about it. He is all-powerful. You have no choice in the matter. No one, appeal to, no one to appeal to for mercy. But then I tell you very clearly, the Bible says God so loved the world. Now do you get it? That's good news. He loves. And, and how did he love? One word I could summarize, cross. This infinite, all-powerful God emptied himself of his divine power, took on human form, suffered and died for the sins of the world, for the sins of Pete Ammerman, for your sins, for my sins, for, for us. And when it says God so loved the world, personalize that. You know, just God so loved Pete Ammerman. God so loved you. He loves you just as you are. But that doesn't mean he wants to keep you that way, right? He, his unconditional love 
means that even if you're resisting him, even if you denied him, his unconditional love can change you. And so he wants you to become all he created you to be. So, where does knowledge begin? It begins by understanding who God is. Bill Bright wrote a book called God, Discover His Character. I love to, I'll just summarize the chapter headings. Because God is a person, I can have intimate fellowship with him. Because God is all-powerful, he can help me with anything. Because God is ever-present, he's always with me. Because God knows everything, I can go to him with all my questions and concerns. Because God is sovereign, I could submit to his will. Because God is holy, he is worthy of my devotion, worship, and service. Because God is absolute truth, I can believe what he says and live accordingly. Because God is righteous, I can live by his standards. Because God is just, I am sure he'll always treat me fairly. Because God is love, he's unconditionally committed to my well-being. Because God is merciful, I, he forgives me when I confess my sin. Because God is faithful, I can trust him to always keep his promises. <clears throat> because God never changes, my future is secure and eternal. <laughs> See, I love that. The more you get to know the nature and character of God, that understanding of God just, just fills your life. And that's where knowledge begins. Know who God is. But second, the fear of the Lord is also the beginning of wisdom. Definition of wisdom, uh, John gave it last week. The Hebrew word is chokmah. And it means literally practical knowledge. It's, it's life knowledge. It's the ability to take certain principles and apply them to life. But I heard a good, another good definition of wisdom. Just imagine this. Imagine if you had the ability to make the right decision every time. Every time. See, that's wisdom. Imagine if you could make the right decision about your family, your career, your money. Like, imagine if you invested in Apple computer in 1980, right? What would you, you, I read it just this week. It'd be worth about $14 million now, right? <laughs> well, just apply that to every area. If you knew certain things, you know what God knows. That's wisdom, right? See, the Bible says this in Ephesians 5, 17. Do not be foolish, but understand what the will of God is. If you knew God's will in every situation, you'd make the right decision, or at least you'd know the right decision. The key is, would you make that right decision? But biblical wisdom is connected with hearing the voice of God from knowing the word of God. How do we hear from God? How do we know his presence? Rather than giving you definitions, I'll tell you a story. There's a story in 1 Kings 19. It's after Elijah has this great victory uh, with, uh, you know, on, on Mount Carmel uh, over against King Ahab and Queen Jezebel and 450 prophets of Baal. 
And there's this fire from heaven that comes down and consumes the, his offering. But rather than being convinced, you would think that Ahab and Jezebel would have convinced that, you know, his God is God. No, they just got more determined. They said to Elijah, we're going to hunt you down and we're going to take your life. And so Elijah fled to a cave. He was totally exhausted. He was ready to give up his prophetic ministry. And the Lord asked him, and the Lord said to Elijah, what are you doing here? There's no place for a prophet. A prophet needs to be out among the people doing his prophet thing, you know. And he said, no one's listening. Nothing changes. I'm ready to end my life. And God says, stand here at the entrance of the cave. I want to show you something. So he stands at the entrance of the cave, and it says, there was a great earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. Then there was a great wind, but the Lord was not in the wind. And then there was a great fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. But then it says, there was a still, small voice. And it spoke to his heart. And when Elijah heard this voice again, he shook with fear. He bowed low at the entrance of the cave. He said, okay, Lord, I get it. I'm ready to go back to my ministry. What about us? See, I think that voice is the voice of the Holy Spirit. I think the Holy Spirit is speaking. In fact, I, I trust that. I trust even now. The Holy Spirit is telling you right now, uh, he's right, you know. It's not because I'm some slick teacher. It's because the Holy Spirit, I agree with what the Holy Spirit is saying to you right now. The key problem that we have, you know, one social commentator called it distracted multitasking. And this is probably one of the great uh, hindrances to really hearing the still small voice or this right here, you know, distracted multitasking. We are completely addicted to our technology, our computers, our TV sets, our media, our phones, and we want stimulation. And we want sounds, and we want sights. And when we don't get it, we say, I'm bored. You know, when my kids or grandkids would say that, I said, what you're really saying is you're boring. <laughs> you're boring. Use your imagination. Read a book. Go outside and play. Make up your own games. No, no, no. We want more distraction. We want multitasking. We want stimulation. And we wonder, why don't we hear from God? a still small voice. You're looking for God in the earthquake, wind, and fire. You're looking for the big sign, this big flash of lightning kind of thing, but it's not like that. It, it's like a still small voice, the Holy Spirit speaking inside of your heart, and it takes a quieting of the mind and heart to really hear that still small voice. It takes time, and it takes focus. You know, I... I in sharing this, I, I'd like to share with you what I think is perhaps one of the, my greatest missed opportunities in my life. Uh, I was going through some struggles, painful moments in my leadership. Uh, some of it was my own fault. Some of it was the fault of others. We just didn't agree on certain things. And I was just hurting. And I was seeking God's guidance and wisdom, what was happening, you know, church, family, everything. I just wanted to get some answers. So I traveled from New Jersey to Minnesota. I was seeking wisdom from my friends there, leaders, and uh, 
I got on the airplane, and usually I get on my laptop. I left it closed. I didn't read a book. I didn't open my laptop. I didn't watch a movie. I just looked out the window for three hours and just was asking, what are you doing, God? What's happening? Where do I go from here? And then I got a car rental, and I was in a rental car another three hours to the headquarters, and uh, same thing. I didn't turn on the radio, didn't have a cell phone, none of that. Three hours in silence. What are you doing, God? I just need to hear from you. <clears throat> and finally, near the end of my ride, I asked God a different question. And I said, God, what is your heart in this situation? And as I was walking up to the car rental counter, bam, just like that. It was unbelievable. It was unmistakable. It was clear. It was a real inward experience. And it was nothing other than the presence. And I felt it. And it was real. It was God. And I knew it. And I heard God's voice. It, almost like it was audible. It was, it was like that. And, and basically he said, Peter, my heart has turned toward you. My heart is turned toward your family. My heart is turned toward your church. My heart is even turned towards those who oppose you. And, and, and I got it. I got it. And that sense of God was so real. And it was so wonderful. And, and I was just weeping. I was just weeping like a baby. And it happened for about five minutes. And then I made one of the biggest blunders of my life. I said to God, you know, God, I'm going up to the car rental desk, and I can't be going here like this. You know, I'm just weeping. So can we pick this up after I'm done there? And, of course, I did my car rental, and it was gone. And I thought, what was I thinking? What was I thinking? Distracted multitasking. I said, God, I'll give you five minutes, and I only got five minutes. I'll tell you what, I'm still living on that moment now. And I've had many quiet moments since then, but why didn't I just say, I'm gonna take an hour, two hours, the rest of the day and enjoy this presence. I was hearing that still small voice. It was so real in my life. And since that moment, I have just, okay. There was an inner healing that took place and it was beautiful. But it's about quieting your soul. It's about listening for that still small voice in your world as well. Let's worship him together.